Heavenly Father, having met you in our lives to taste of the goodness of God, we can never be the same. And if we've ever tasted and experienced you, it creates a hunger that no man can understand. And Lord, how the enemy would try to put so many layers in between that hunger and, oh God, what, where we're at. I pray tonight, Lord, that you would just peel back some of those layers, that we can leave here tonight a better people, walking closer to you. Lord, more like you, more in our talk, more in our walk, more in our faith, our thoughts, our thinking. May we, O oh Lord, be made more in your image. I pray you'll take this service tonight. Lord, no matter what the enemy has thrown at us today, we now put everything aside. We're gathered in a Wednesday, and we don't want to call it just a Wednesday. It's a moment. It's a few moments before your throne. And so, Lord, we reverence that. We appreciate that. We want to thank you for the testimonies we've had, what you've been doing for Brother Luke Semenuk, what you've done for our sister Shelley, Lord. Father, we give you thanks. Lord, there's other needs that are here. Our Brother Joel Nunweiler. Lord, just hearing today, yesterday rather, of Sister Rebecca Peterson. Lord, my wife. Lord, not one of these is forgotten before you. But Lord, you're never too late. You are never too late. And, and Lord, even when it seemed you were late, 
four days late for a friend on earth, but it turned out you were right on time. And Lord, we believe you'll be right on time. So that's our rest tonight. Lord, as we open the pages of the Bible, now take every thought into your hands as I give myself to you and this, your people, everyone listening in, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. I'll invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 3. Many times we open to a scripture and we'll say, this is a familiar scripture. We're not going to say that today. Um, If you're a Bible reader, maybe it's familiar to you, but we won't say that today. Reading verse 1 to 7. And there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And unto David were sons born in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of, I don't know if I can say all these words, of Ahinoham the Jezreelitess, and the second Chilia of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the, the Carmelite, and the third Absalom, the son of Mecca, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ithriam by Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. And it came to pass while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Wherefore hast thou gone in unto my father's concubine? And we'll read more in this, but I'm going to let you have your seats. I'm going to take a subject of redemption claims, but I, I want to speak on a title of Rizpah's initiative. Now, Rizpah, if I can just say it was in verse 7, let me, let me maybe give a little background because as I said from the outset, this was not a common scripture, neither would it be a common subject. You will not find this woman's name mentioned in the message as we know it. And she's only in two places in the Bible. But it's not how many times it's mentioned, it's what's associated with it. Because Shamgar was mentioned one time. And Shamgar is very well known to us. And there was a woman in the Bible one time that did one little act. And this woman, in her act, uh, she washed Jesus' feet while there were Pharisees, onlookers all around. And she washed his feet, and then she used her hair. And as they all looked down on her and what her background was, 
Jesus would say to her, this woman has anointed me for burial, and what she has done here shall be forever after be spoken of her. So it takes just one act. It was when Brother Branham was out on a fishing boat, and he was with two brothers, and the two brothers were speaking uh, about uh, and, uh, the, where they'd come from, and Brother Branham had prophesied and told them, today you will see God create, do a resurrection. And, and they, that was when a little fish was resurrected. And, and it, if you trace back the roots, the roots of it were those two men had gone back to their Sunday school teacher in their old denomination, and they had said, this is what God has done for us. And the angel of the Lord heard that, and as because he heard that, they were a part of the benefactors of what they saw. Now, I, I will say, that same God is moved today by an act of faith, not that is just coming to church, that is not just doing what we have to do, but doing what we do by inspiration, doing what we do by our own free moral agency, doing what we do from the heart. That's what moves that God. That's what brings him on the scene. So, so if, we, if we look at this, this woman, and do we believe the Bible is the infallible word of God? There is no book like the Bible. Everything that's recorded is recorded for a purpose. Everything, and as Brother Branham would say to us, if you see, look in the Old Testament, and you don't see Jesus in it, go back and read it again, because you've missed something. And I, I would actually like to say, our awareness is coming greater than that of just Jesus, but we are also seeing our part in him. We are not just seeing uh, history when we read the Old Testament. We are not just seeing the foreshadow of Christ, but we're also seeing the foreshadow of a bride with Christ. We see that in the acts of, of the people in the Bible, particularly some of the women in the Old Testament. We see it in, in the terminology that's used in the Bible when it would talk about Zion or the daughter of Zion. Because Zion is a type of the bride. And if you begin to look at the Bible with those things in your mind and in your heart, you will begin to see it's a living word. It's not just a word of history. It's not just a subject that we place and associate. But actually, it's a living, breathing, moving book. It's unfolding. It's showing us our place in Him. It is the untold riches of God. We can never explain it. We can never figure it it out, and it's God who has to interpret it to us. So I believe that we are in the age of what's called the open book. And the open book is not just knowledge that's opened up, but it's the Spirit of God that has brought illumination to our very hearts, and it's identifying our part in the book. So, with that preamble, <laughs> this will be where I'll go to. Now, we take this little woman, this little 
Scripture reading, verses 1 to 7. If you notice in there, there was a total of six women mentioned. Six women that were David's wives. And the identifiable characteristic that was given to each of these women in this reading is it was the identification of a son that was born to them. Some sons you'd know by name. But now it comes down to verse 7, and there's a seventh woman mentioned. And this woman is not of the lineage of the tribe of Judah, nor a wife of David, but rather she is identified as a concubine. And a concubine is a lower status than that of a wife. A concubine is one who uh, was not given the rights associated to other wives. And, and, and so we recognize not only was she of the wrong lineage, but she was that of the house of Saul, one of Saul's concubines. Not associated with her was any delineation of a son or any great thing that she'd ever done. And in fact, she's the seventh much like a woman came to a well one day, and Jesus identified to her, said, you have had five husbands. The one you're living with right now is not your husband. And what she didn't realize, she had just met the seventh. And the seventh was to make a difference on her life forevermore thereafter. Now, if we look at this little portion of Scripture and we begin to take these thoughts, and, and, and I'm, I'm just going to dwell on this uh, in, in this simple, simplified service, but it just seemed that the Lord moved me on in a Scripture several weeks ago, and I just kept dwelling on it and dwelling on it, and just something started opening, and today it just started in a, in a greater way, and I felt it was the Lord moving me this way. Now... If we, if we take this scripture, I, I want to background the understanding of where this is in time. Now, this is in 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel starts as the beginning of Samuel the prophet. It, it, tell, it, it goes to his beginnings. All Israel knew that Samuel was a prophet. And under Samuel, he then anoints Saul to be the king. And Eventually, because of Saul's disobedience, there's a downward decline. And at that time, the, there is the anointing of David as king while Saul is yet alive. Now, David uh, was just a young, young man. It was many years he would coexist while Saul reigned. And yet everything that he did was moving and was anointing him to the place that God had ordained for him. And we could take this, this thought in mind. The, 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 we know that there's seven church ages, that the Laodicean age is the last age. But out of the Laodicean age, Brother Branham refers to what he calls the bride age. And the bride age is not an eighth age, but it exists within 
the, the seventh age, the Laodicean age. It's an age where God works differently than he works with the denominational ways of the past. So the conditions of Laodicea are all around us. The denominational world exists all around us. The church order exists around. We adopt some of the same church order. We have services on Sunday, on Wednesday. We have gathering in pews. We have song services. We do those things. But yet the way we live and we serve God is completely different than denominations. And if we are viewing it in just the old course, and I will say this, if God hasn't brought us there, he's going to bring us to a point where we are not not just a church, but we are a people. And we are God's redeemed people. And everyone that exists in that body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's called a mystical body, will have a direct relationship with the head of that body. It will not go through a hierarchy of I attend this church, or I know this and this brother, or this and this family, but it has to be where there is a direct lineage where we are moved and where we are motivated and where we are directed and unctioned by God himself. And that's my desire for us as a people. It's my desire for myself. It's, it's that we don't just adopt a robotic, a regular routine, and this is how we've always done it, but that we move into a higher realm with God. And that's what he's desiring for us. So now, if we take all of this, here's David in our, in our picture as it's unfolding. David goes through many trials, many tests, and he runs from Saul. He's anointed king. And an evil spirit is afflicting Saul. And David is going through all of these things. All of this is happening while the kingdom of Saul is still there. But within that, there's something rising underneath it. And that's exactly where we are. If we can just say, oh man, you guys have more trials and more troubles than anybody I know. Exactly, because we're coming to a place and we need the character of God in order to be fit to reign and rule. And so I thank God for those things that come upon us because they, they increase our faith. They don't make us say, woe is me. They don't make us say, oh, uh, you know, we must be doing something wrong. On the contrary, Satan knows that his time is over and that there's a people on the earth now that are coming into their full inheritance. They're coming into their full power. They are not just a called out like any other age. This people is called with a purpose in the end. And that's the people that we are. I trust that you feel that way. I, I, I believe it more than anything with all my heart. So here is David doing that. Now, Saul has declined. He is... Uh, because of his disobedience, um, when he was to wait for the sacrifice in the, in the battle with the Amalekites, and out of the, Saul's disobedience, there was a transgression that God never forgave. And I'll come to this in a moment. Now, that set the tone where it was one transgression after the other. He tried to kill David. First, he gave David his wife, and, and on the wedding night, he sets it up that he's going to have men kill him. And, and Michael, his wife, actually helps him at that time. And David has to run for his life thereafter. And in fact, later on, Saul, just to give it a little spite to it, he gives his wife to somebody else. And, and so now he began to 
fall into a decline. And that's what happens when we get out of the will of God. We can be in the form, but if we're not connected, our thinking gets clouded, our mind gets obscured. We do not have the vibrancy. We do not have the connection. We do not have the sharpness to see things the way we should see things. Friends, there's things that are in the message that you can read all day long and God can hide it if we don't have the correct heart to approach it the right way. So I, I, I just believe more than ever we need to be in tune. And if you're out of tune, the way to get back in the program of God is by prayer. And you, you start to just give yourself bit by bit. Say, Lord, I, I know I'm fighting this flesh. I know I'm fighting these things. But I'm giving myself to you. And I pray you'll take more of it. So that's what happened with Saul. He began to try to run after David. And, and in his zeal to get David, he didn't care about the collateral damage. There was 80 priests, at the priests of Nob, and, and Saul thought nothing to kill them. And men could see that in Saul. And so the man who, who, who came to him and, and ratted on the priest, so to speak, they're, they're, these things happened. He chased David all over the place. And it seemed like he was going from one thing to the next to the next. And finally, it comes down to his very end. And he's come back full circle. He's in a battle, and he doesn't know what to do. Let's go to 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel 28. Now, in this, let, we'll just give a little bit of the story, and then we'll just move it along. 1 Samuel 28, verse 7. And Saul said to his servants, Seek me a woman that is a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And he said, the servant said, There's a woman that has a familiar spirit. At Endor, Saul disguised himself, put on a raiment, and, and he went to other men with the women. They came to the woman by night. And he says, Bring, and he says, Bring him up whom I shall name to thee. And the woman said, you know, you, know, I, you know what Saul has done? He's cut off all of those that have spirits and wizards. Why are you trying to ensnare me in this? And Saul said, don't worry. As the Lord liveth, there'll be no punishment to you. He's hiding him, his real identity to her. And the woman says, whom shall I bring up to thee? He says, bring up Samuel. Samuel had by this time had died. And the woman, saw, when she saw Samuel, cried with a loyd voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king, now, could you imagine him digressing and going to what would be a familiar spirit, to going to the dark side, to a demonic realm, to try to bring these things up? But this is what happened as he got away from God. And I'll say, Laodicea is so deceptive that you can get, you can have a religious spirit on you, understand the message, and you can be going from one thing to the next to the next. Friends, it's too late to fall into that channel. We've got to stay in the right channel. So now he would say, and the king said, why, why you, don't be afraid. What did you see? He says, I saw gods ascending out of the earth, verse 13. And he says, verse 14, what form is he? An old man. He's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived it was Samuel. And he put his face to the ground, uh, ground and bowed himself. I'm going to just jump ahead. Let's go to verse 16. Then said Samuel to him, Wherefore do you ask me, seeing the Lord is departed from thee and is become thine enemy? The Lord has done this to him as he spake by him, for the Lord had rent the kingdom out of thine hand and given it to your neighbor, even to David, because you obeyed not the voice of the Lord, nor executed his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore has the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. 
Now, he's recounting. It's come full circle. He's saying, you, you've done this. Don't you understand? God has anointed David. You're, 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 you're not going anywhere. And now he gives this proclamation. Now, we think how wicked Saul has been. But yet he was a part of the tribes of Israel. He was from Benjamin. Even though he did all of this, and, and the prophet would say, despite all of that, look at the next verse. Moreover, it says, the Lord also will deliver with thee into thy hand into the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Where? In the presence of God in paradise. He says, the Lord shall also deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. So Saul was not lost. Even though he did all of these things, he was not lost. Now that doesn't mean you have a right to go and do those things. Could you imagine what was given to him? But you know, and, and as I'm just bringing this into a perspective, you know, this is what Saul had digressed to. Now, during all of this time, Saul as a king had no doubt accumulated wives, he had accumulated wealth, he had accumulated different things, and somewhere he had met this concubine called Rizba. And he may not have thought much of her, and he may not have thought, okay, what, what would she do and what would she be, but yet God had allowed that woman to be there even as part of Saul, just as much as God allowed Saul's son, Jonathan, to befriend David. And that relationship with David became an oath that, that, that held Jonathan and David together. And, and it was beautiful, the relationship, because they were really on opposite sides. Jonathan should inherit the kingdom from his father. But yet he saw in David the attributes of a king. And he said, but David, you, everybody knows you will be king. And it was Jonathan that gave himself to that. So contrary to what his father did, God allowed Jonathan to be there. And contrary to what Saul did, even amongst all his wives, he allowed this woman named Rizba to be there. Where are you going with this, brother Ed? Just let, let, let's unfold just a little bit more. So we can go up to 2 Samuel chapter 31. 2 Samuel, sorry, First, first Samuel 31. Sorry, Brother Mark. First Samuel chapter 31. Now this is the battle that was just prophesied. They're in the battle. Um, David's sons are killed. Saul is wounded. He ends up putting a spear through himself. Verse 6, so Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all the women that's, and all, the men, all his men the same day together. And when the men of Israel saw they were on the other side of the valley, that they were on the other side of Jordan, then the men of Israel fled, and Saul's and his sons were dead. They forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. And it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent into the land of the Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. The fall, the death of Saul. They cut his head off. They paraded it through the houses of their idols. They showed their victory over Israel's king. 
And it would go on to say, and they put his armor in the house of Ashtoreth, and they, fashioned, they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. What an end. Now verse 11, And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that which the Philistines had done to Saul, then all the valiant men arose, and they went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and came to Jabesh, and they burnt them there, and they took their bones and buried them under a tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. God bless those men. No matter what Saul had done, Saul was given a measure of honor by these that was not given by the Philistines. Now, they were buried in Israel. This was a place called Jabesh. It was east of Jerusalem. It was actually in land that belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. Uh, and even though tribe the, that, that Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin... The Bible is an amazing book for records. If you, if you take all of the different things in the Bible, the transgressions that are against the land or against the people, God never forgets anything. And, and it was Moab that would not help Israel. It was a cousin, if you can call it, to Israel, but they would not help them on the journey. And God did not forget that. It was a prophet named Balaam that would, would prophesy against them, anointed, anointed even as the same spirit that was on Moses, but he would look on their backside and prophesy against them, and God never forgot that. And you read the account, scriptures later, where Balaam was killed in a certain, certain battle. It was Amalek, Amalek who uh, was the, the battle that they were on, and it was Amalek that, that came against Israel, and God, and you, and you ask yourself this question, why would God be so hard on Saul when you look at other men in the Bible that had done things similar to Saul, in fact, worse than, but they were never given the punishment that God doled out on Saul. But you have to go back to the roots and see what God said about Amalek and what he prophesied against him and that he would, his, his remembrance would be blotted out and all of these things. So God had it in for Amalek and it was the Amalekites that Saul was facing that day in the battle. And it was the king Agad that, that Solomon was, that, that Samuel had told him. So there are things that God has very much a focus on. And it behooves us not to take things casually. Not to take even the message we have casually. Not to take our words against one another casually. Not to allow our attitudes. Not to allow bitterness to creep in. Not to allow, but to keep ourselves clean. To keep ourselves open to doing the will of God. Not to become sympathetic to Laodicea and the spirits of Laodicea. Not to engage the fightings of people's rights. That's a Laodicean spirit. That is not what God does. But it's, it, it's to stay under the place where God can take us for himself and he can use us in his behalf. And Saul failed in that. So Saul, when, 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 when he came to that place, and, and he, he wouldn't, and God had to, to use that transgression, you know, it was Saul letting Agag go, Agag, and then his wife later bore a son, bore a son, bore a son, became Haman. What does one little thing mean? Everything. 
So all of these things, and the, and the Bible would say, the eyes of the Lord are on the land from the beginning to the end. And God remembers everything. Let me just say this, God is in the details. Leviticus 25, I'm just going to come back to this. We shared it, and then I'm going to finish the story here. Leviticus 25, in, in verse 4, and again, this is a principle in the Bible. We read this here. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. So the, year, the land was God's land. Uh, the title deed was in God's hand. He was witnessing everything that was there. He saw everything about it, and he cared over the land. And he would, you know, he would go on to tell him in verses 5 through 7 that, you know, there was to be a year of rest and how there would be grapes and it was a year of rest. And then in verse 6, it would be meat for your servant, for all of these others. And verse 7, for the cattle and all the increase. But it, and, and knowing that there may be transgressions on the, against the land, God also initiated a year of rest so that the land could heal itself, could do it. But it would have to go further than that. And in verse 8 he says, Thou shalt number not just seven years, but seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of seven Sabbaths of years shall be to thee forty and nine years. So now seven times seven, it would come to 50 years. And then in verse 9, it would say, You shall cause a trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. So there had to come a time where all the records were brought straight. And it would come under a year, a, a redemption of the land. And it would come where everything would be made right under that land. And so now he, he proclaims this. You know, notice it was the tenth day of the seventh month. You notice that it was Revelations 10, verse 7. You know, it was Esther that went in to see the king on the 10th day of the 7th month. None of these things are mistakes. It's the accuracy of the Word of God. Do you think he knows about your life? Do you think he knows about the details of your life? Do you think he knows about where you were at this last week? He knows your thoughts. He knows everything about you. And one day it will be played on the great recording judgment except for the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, how grateful we are for that. So he brings this purpose to pass, verse 10. You shall hallow the 50th year, proclaim a liberty throughout all the land. It'll be a jubilee unto you, and you shall return every man to his possession and every man to his, fa his family. So nothing would be lost. It would be the great reconciliation. As I said on Sunday, Bill Gates could thrive for 49 years, and after that he'd have to go back to zero if he lived in that time, okay? So, so we, we have to recognize God cares for the land. If he cares for the land, how much more does he care for us? A jubilee shall shine the 50th year. You shall not sow, neither reap that which groweth of itself, neither gather the grapes of thy vine undressed. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. It shall, you shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. There's more I could say of this, but I just want to get to this verse 13. In the year of this jubilee, you shall return every man 
to his possession. Now, God's intent was to bring it back to something. Now, let's just drop down to verse 23. The land shall not be sold forever. The land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in verse 24, in all the land of your possession, you shall grant a redemption for the land. Now he's putting it back on on us. You shall grant a, a redemption. If we are in the bride age, in the middle of Laodicea, if we are the people called the bride, if we've been typed by Esther, if we are God's representative on this earth at a time when the judgments of God are falling, if we type it to Noah who would stand in the door of the ark till it was closed, pleading, crying, I think we have an example about what we ought to do in our heart, in our attitude, in our mindset to those that are without not just to those that, that are, 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 are out, out, out in, the, in different places, but what about our loved ones? What about all of those that exist? Now, God has us here for a purpose. He wants us to exercise redemption for the land. I'm going to go back to another scripture before I jump into this, but if you begin to think about the law that was in the Garden of Eden, it was a law, you do this and I'll do that, you do this, you don't do this and I won't do that. So it was a law based on works and on deeds. But thereafter, and it, and it would start thereafter where it would be Abraham and God would make a new covenant, and it was unconditional. And, and, and we know it full well, but I'm going to draw one scripture. Genesis 12. I need to bring this in to really tie into the rest of the story. Genesis 12. Are you with me tonight? Genesis 12. Sorry, Genesis 15. Brother Mark, say what I say. Do what I say sometimes and do what I wrote other times, okay? If you can figure that out. Genesis 15, verse 1. Genesis 12 is where Abraham was called. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Abraham begins to claim to God, well, I don't have no word. I don't have a child. I don't have nothing. Verse 4. The word of the Lord comes to him. This shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, look toward the heaven, the stars, number them. And if you can do that, that's how your seed will be. And now, could you imagine that? You're given all of that and Abraham goes, there's no way. It can't be. But actually the next verse says, and he believed in the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. Oh, I'm calling you out of a life of the world. I'm calling you out of the form of, of, of being just a young person to be more. I'm, no, not me, Lord. You've got, we've had other great men. We've had this. But God is calling each one of us to a higher level. He's calling us not just to be where we're at right now, uh, not just to come in, well, you know, we're going to go in the message, we're going to live out till the rapture comes and, and I'm going to be there. No, you'll only be in the rapture if you're being raptured in these services, if you're being raptured in your life at home, if you see something that way. And I say he's calling us to that right now. I don't want to make this condemnation to anybody, but I'm just saying I'm encouraging you. This is where we need to come to. So now he will go on to tell him, in verse 7, I am the Lord that brought you out of the Ur of Chaldees to give you this land that you may inherit. He said, Lord God, how am I going to know that I'll inherit it? 
So he gives them these simple instructions. Take a heifer, three years old, a she-goat, three years old, a ram of three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he took upon him all of these and he divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against the other, but the birds he divided not. In a message, Jehovah Jireh, Brother Branham would say this. Now, here is the confirmation of the covenant that God would prove to Abraham that he was going to keep his promise. And he tells him to take these, all these animals, to split them in half, but the doves, which are the same family, he says, they represented healing. Healing has always been by faith, so he didn't tell him to divide those. So, and, and he goes on to another place in another scripture in Jehovah Jireh, another, another service. And, and he, would, he would actually say this part. Uh, here it is, okay. He says, now, the, the doves were not separated, showing it was the same covenant, whether it was under the law or not. It wasn't going to change. So that was representing healing. Healing, the Lord God that healeth thee, existed in the Old Testament, he exists today. That covenant has never changed. But the other part of the covenant, which un under those days, you know, I, I got such lengthy quotes, I don't want to read them, I'm trying to, sir, just to move quickly. Let me just read this. God separating those animals, now he's giving a quick type, tearing the life from Christ, his son taking the spirit out of them, he cut those animals in two. And then the light, God himself, went between them, showing that he separated the body, the seed, the royal seed. He took the spirit and he sent it back on the church. The church of today goes to meet Christ because it will have the same spirit that he had. If you want to actually get a better feel this, read any of the Jehovah Jireh series that, that Brother Branham talks about. In, in Abraham, he says, now, that, I, I didn't read all of this, I'll come to another part of it in a minute, but he, he would just tell him that he divides them, and then there was an eternal darkness, a darkness came upon a Abraham, that represents the darkness that we all come under, which is death. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just, because of time slipping away, let me, let me do this now. The birds he divided not, verse 10. Verse 11, and when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and a great horror of darkness fell upon him. Now, I'm going to just focus on verse 11 for a minute. I, and I've all, always been intrigued by this, and this is the part the Lord really connected to me for a, a moment, and I'll bring it forward in a minute. Brother Branham would say this in, in Jehovah Jireh. Now he cut the sacrifice of these animals, and he watched until the sun was going down. And the fowls came down out of the air on Abraham's sacrifice, vultures. And Abraham cast them out. He shooed them away. Okay, now... The fulfillment of the light going through the middle of the darkness is something God was telling Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. You have no say in this. You can't resurrect yourself. You can't do anything. But I'm going to do with this. 
And Abraham was waiting for that. Friends, there's not one of us that can produce a miracle. There is not one of us that can produce healing. There is not one of us that, that can produce a manifestation of God. We're not called to produce it. We're called to bear it. Like sheep, we don't produce or manufacture these things, but we bear them. It's a product of us believing Him and trusting Him. So while Abraham was waiting for the promise, he, he created this, the sun was going to come down, there was going to be a horror of darkness. While this was happening, he began to, to notice the birds coming down, and he began, something within him began to take and go against these birds, and he beat them off the sacrifice. And he was beating them off the sacrifice. Now listen to what Brother Branham says. What is that a type of? That's Abraham's seed in the last day casting out devils from the sacrifice, casting away the sacrifice. God promised it, but here comes them unbelieving spirits trying to devour it. You get started in the faith. What comes against you? A spirit that says, it's not so. And if you open your way up to it, it begins to consume you. You don't have the faith to wait for the promise, or you're not in expectation anymore. So you begin to keep your mind clean. You begin to keep your spirit clean. And so he would say this, these unbelieving spirits are trying to devour it, but there stands the man of God casting away those devils, now God confirming the covenant in Abraham's seed. Let me, let me bring one more before I move ahead. Notice, Abraham watched the birds off it to keep the sacrifice clean. Paul would say, having started, how is it you turn back to weak and beggarly elements? He said, if I build the things that I once tore down, I make myself a transgressor. Let me just, just drop this in. We cast out televisions. We put snares around computers in the home. But now we have tablets, devices that make it so much more accessible. You know, the saying is, you know, you can, we're talking about free moral agency. You have a choice in what you make. Now, your choice has to be by faith. But what are the conditions that precede a choice? Let me, let me take the negative for a minute. What are the conditions that precede you know, the saying is, the devil made me do it. No, the devil never made you do it. But you opened up to something, and you put yourself in a position of unbelief. Now take where you would consider your greatest fall, what were the conditions preceding that? Who was the company that you were keeping? What was the thing you were looking at? What was the thing you were listening to? What had you opened up to? Because the devil never makes you do it, but he creates an atmosphere where you eventually discard all the warning signs and your flesh responds willingly to what you're living in already. Now, by the same token, to receive the promise of God, you have to create conditions. Now, 
Evil spirits are going to come. Birds are going to come on your sacrifice. But you need to beat those birds off. You need to keep your spirit clean. You need to allow complexes not to build up. You need to allow yourself not to open to the channels of thinking of the world. You need to stay away from, in Brother Branham's day, he'd say them video games or them, 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 them novels or those things. He says you need to keep your head out of those things. How much more in this day? I want to be in a place where God can move me. Now, I can't manufacture anything, but I can sure keep the ground clean. I can sure create conditions where if I see a bird coming in to, 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 to eat away at this, hold on a second, this is, this is where God's going to come one day. And you can't be here. Get away, get away. Listen, Joseph was a young man, as much as any young man there was. And when Potiphar's wife came to him, Joseph didn't say, no, no, listen, don't touch me because one day I'm going to be the, the redemption that, that's going to come through Israel. He, he might have repeated that, but before he ever could be that, he had to rebuff that. And he didn't rebuff it by saying, now, excuse me, Mrs. Sister Potiphar, like, this is not right, okay? Uh, you know, no, he ran, so much so that she was left holding part of his garment and he was running. Now, friends, that's the way we've got to be. We've got to be zealous. What was it in Abraham? God never told him, beat these birds. But there was something in him. And there's something in you. If you met God, you're saying, I can't allow my spirit to go down these paths. It's caused me grief. It's wounded me. And I've got to keep the birds off. My goodness. I'm just taking my time getting through this, but... Okay, let's go back to the story. 2 Samuel chapter 3. Rizbah, we've read through verses 1 to 7. Now Saul had this concubine named Rizbah, the daughter of A. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Wherefore have you gone into your father's concubine? Now it doesn't say that he actually went into her. Abner was a general. And Abner, when he heard this from, from Saul's son, Ishbosheth, he, in verse 8, was very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head, which against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul thy father, to his brethren and to his friends, and have not delivered thee into the hand of David, that you would charge me this day with a fault concerning this woman? Now, he's, he's, he's rebuking him. And he said, so do God to Abner, and more also, except as the Lord has sworn to David, even so do I him. Now, he's, 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 he's getting so upset, he's flipping allegiances now in a heartbeat. And he says, to translate the kingdom of, from the house of Saul to set the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner a word because he feared him. Now, Abner, he had made himself strong in the house of Saul. Now this challenge comes. And when the challenge comes uh, regarding this woman, Rizpah. Now look at, she's a vital place in all of this thing. And he, and he never says that she actually did anything with him or anything. But he, Abner just says, that, this is too much. He says, you think I would go after that woman? You think... Don't you know what the Bible says about David? I says, that's it, I'm done with you. And he goes over to David's camp and, and Joab gets underhanded and jealous and deals with him. Now, I'm going to leave a gap because I just need, time is slipping by here. I need to sort of go a little further on, on this for a moment. 
My, okay, 2 Samuel chapter 21. This will be our last scripture. We'll just take a few verses here now. I, I, I could read where, I already read where Saul was buried, where all of this happened. There's 2 Samuel 1 where David comes into power and he deals with the men. And David is, at the time this all happens, is in Hebron. He has not gone down to Jerusalem yet. But let's read this, 2 Samuel 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It's for Saul and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. Now just give you a background. Don't read further, please. Just listen to me for a moment. This is my story. It's not yours. <laughs> now, can you imagine this? The land that God promised he would bless them. Now there's a famine on the land. And unbeknownst to them, it's because there's been a transgress, transgression committed against the land. And David, he's, he's, Lord, you promised to bless us. How come nothing's happening here? And he says, well, it's because of Saul and that he slew the Gibeonites. Now, who were the Gibeonites? Okay? They weren't actually in the inheritance. But Joshua... When he came into the land, these were the, the group, the people that made themselves like they had gone a journey from years and years. They had old clothes, stale bread. They feigned themselves to be from a far country and said, we've heard about you. We're willing to, to, to acknowledge you. Just don't fight against us. And, and, and Joshua at that time made a pledge with them, but he never consulted the Lord. Look at how binding this pledge was that God would even remember it at the time of a famine, a people that weren't in the inheritance, but they were linked by the word of a man called Joshua. God remembers everything. Now, here's this famine, and because he slew the Gibeonites. This is, look at God He's, he's going back to a king that was not even in his good books, but it was committed against the land. Verse 2, and the king, David, called the Gibeonites and said unto him, now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, and the children of Israel had sworn to them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel. So he killed a number of them. And David now comes to the Gideonites. What can I do for you? Now, there, there's been a famine, and David's trying to alleviate the famine. What am I going to do to you? How can I make an atonement that I may, you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Now, he's attributing this to their inheritance. They can't inherit their land. This has been done against them. What can I do? And the Gibeonites said to him, verse Four, we have no silver nor gold of Saul nor of his house, neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, what shall you say that I will do for you? And the king answered, the man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any other coast of Israel, let seven sons of his, seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them in, in, we will hang them unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose, 
And the king said, I will give them. Now, the king, in, in verse 7, he would not give Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. I always have trouble saying that. Brother M, let's call him that. And he says, because there was an oath between David and Jonathan. But then he takes, the king took two sons of Rizbah. Now here she pops up again. The daughter of Aya, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni and Mithbosheth. This is a different brother M. And, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she had brought up for Adriel, the son of Barsalia, the Meholite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill of the Lord. And they all fell, fell all seven together, and they were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Stop reading there. Just look at me. And we would think, we would think, oh, the land has its respite. But these men did not have the law of redemption in their hearts. They were the Gibeonites. It was an eye for an eye or eye for two eyes. They didn't have that in their hearts. So God didn't view this as an acceptable sacrifice yet. Now, five of them were of Michael. Two of them were of Rizbah. Verse 10. And Rizbah the daughter of Aya took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of the harvest until water dropped them upon them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the, the beasts of the field by night. Look at what she's doing. The same thing Abraham did. She's doing the same thing. Now here's her son's that she had been born. She wasn't even in the lineage. But here's her sons that have been born. They've been killed. And, and, and as a mother, now something wells up inside of her. Don't let them die this way, oh God. Don't let them be this way. And she brings sackcloth and puts it on the ashes. And the birds are coming. And they're coming on and she's beating them away. Now, if you read it, from the beginning of the harvest until the rain came. This wasn't one day. This was now a season. It was drought in that time. And the drought would not be fulfilled until rain came. Now just think about this. If, if there was a curse on the land, and, and it was going to be attributed by just this, but God always has redemption in his heart. And this woman displayed this redemption. And she began to beat these birds away. Now, in some accounts that I read of this, this might have been up to a period of six months. She was there day by day protecting him. And finally the rain came. Now, you would think this is marvelous. Look what this woman did. But it had greater consequences. Because up in Hebron there was a king named David. Now look at what God does. An act of a woman begins to move the king. Friends, there's a bride on earth. And the way she conducts herself will have an effect on the king. We're waiting on him. Oh, Lord, you got to do this. But you know what? He's put something in our hands. What are you going to do about it? What act are you going to bring about this? Sister Hattie, what about your sister? What about this? I desire the salvation of my boys. You will have it. 
What is in the heart of the bride? The same thing that was in Rizba. Rizba does this. And now listen, the account. You know, David's men are going, you know, maybe in the court, the talk is going, have you seen what's going on down there? This woman is constant. She's just going like crazy. She's doing all these things. And David, what woman? Rizba. Rizba. Who's Rizba? It's a concubine of Solomon. Two of the sons. Verse 11. And it was told David what Rizba, the daughter of Ai, had done, the concubine of Saul. And David, something began to move in him. If a mother would be that way for her sons, what about the bodies of Saul and Jonathan that are not lying in their rightful inheritance. And David, something begins to move him. And now David, he comes and he says, and David went and he took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabeth Gilead, which they had stolen them from the street of Bethshan where the Philistines had hanged them. And the Philistines had slain Saul and Gilboa and he brought them, and he brought them from thence, the bones of, of Saul, the bones of Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of them that were hanged, and the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, were buried where? In Benjamin, where their inheritance lies. And he says, in the country of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the sepulcher of Kish, his father, and they performed all that the king commanded. And now look at the answer from heaven. Last verse of this, last sentence. After that, God was entreated for the land. Now it took David to bring those bones and put them in the right place before David would ever come to reign in Jerusalem. He was still king in Hebron at that time. Before that would ever happen, this piece had to move over here. What started this whole process? A woman with love in her heart for her sons began with a pure motive. Nobody told her what to do. I'm going to reach out to this person. I'm going to reach. Listen, friends, Laodicea has so hardened us. Hardened us within our homes sometimes, hardened us brother to brother, sister to sister, church to church, hardened us against the world, the world is dying for a little bit of love. One act could change everything. You, as in the message that followed the token, Brother Branham says, desperations, what we need, we're dying for, is a lack of love. And friends, what is it? It's not just something that I'm going to do good works. No, but this was motivated from deep down within. Friends, there's a part of us that is bringing about redemption's claims. It's not just waiting on the Lord. While we're here, there's something in us. I want to serve Him. I want to do everything I can for Him. I am going to give myself. And if, if my part, my inheritance, maybe is extending my blanket over my fallen brother, or it could be a wayward son or a wayward daughter. And you know, listen, we cannot make that happen. But we create the conditions. We beat the birds off. We keep the channels open. We, don't, we, can't, we can't save them. 
But you can keep a relationship. You can, you can still be a mother, a father to them. You can still be a brother, a sister to them. You can keep a right attitude. You can allow, you can allow your own channels to be clean. That God can use that. And you know what? You might be stepping into the same shoes that Rizpah did. And she's doing, and God is looking down from heaven, just like David looked down and saw Rizbah. I've got to act on this. Because they're stepping into their position. I need to allow things to happen. And then you watch heaven move. Friends, the seventh seal in heaven was what? Silence. Silence. Why? All heaven didn't know what was going on. I'm not going to interpret that for you. But I believe we are in a relationship where the bride knows what he wants done with the word. And I believe it's motivated by a free moral agency, by our will. Not, not that we have to. God's not telling us what to do. But we've been under the word. We've created the same atmosphere. And now God comes. Friends, how do you? Let's have the musicians come. There's a rain coming. There's a revival coming. There's going to be things that God will bring back to our inheritance that he will bring. But we need to cultivate the right ground. We need to do what Rizba did, beat the birds off. We need to keep these things pure and clean. Friends, we need to be closer to God. I need to be closer to him. But you, we do our part, and you watch God do his part. Let's stand together. I feel like I want to sing that song again. All I want to see is Jesus. I want to see him in me. I want to see him in my brother and my sister. Let's start from the first verse if we can. Oh, I know the time is near. Oh, I know the time is near When everything that I hold dear Will lay before the holy Consuming fire Think about it tonight, friends. Think about it. All my works and all my deeds and every prayer spent on my knees will lay before the holy, consuming fire. All I want to see is Jesus. All I want to see is Him.
See? 